Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. We do have somewhat of a deal still running. Just to remind everyone at worldviewconversation.com, if you don't have your copy of Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict, you can get that. You can get Social Justice Goes to Church. You can get Edie Robles' book, uh, Social Justice Pharisees still. All of them still on sale at worldviewconversation.com. I'll put the link in the info section for those who uh, want to check that out. Uh, that's all I have for announcements. I want to get into um, this. It's not a piece. It's actually a portion of a book called The Prodigal God, which was published in 2008 by Tim Keller. And the reason I'm doing this is because I saw a tweet. And the tweet, I guess, was from 2018, so eight, 10 years later. Uh, but it was reposted by someone very recently on, uh, I think I, I don't really go on Twitter, but I think that's where I saw it. I, I think I was, I don't know why I was there, but I happened to be there and I happened to see this tweet and it was, and I thought it was recent, but it was, it was from 2018, but it was a quote from a book, like I said, from 2008. And, um, the quote just, it seemed in my mind to encapsulate Tim Keller and just what, like everything that Tim Keller has said, I mean, there's been, there's been a whole book written basically against his theology by Presbyterian scholars and pastors. And there's so many different issues in that book. And, and of course I've written a chapter or, a, or a, an appendix in social justice goes to church, the new left and modern American evangelicalism. At the end, there's an appendix on Tim Keller and I didn't even touch any of those issues. I talked about separate issues. It, there's so many. And, and there was there was this quote though, and I just thought, you know what, this like, this seems to be in my mind, probably the motivation, and it's, it's bigger than Tim Keller. This is, so many people love Tim Keller, listen to Tim Keller, read Tim Keller, uh, so many influential people in not just the Presbyterian denominations, but also in the Southern Baptist Convention and non-denominational circles, that I, I think this quote that I'm gonna read to you it says so much about all kinds of things we're seeing right now. Just, just think about all the issues that are controversial right now. And, just, and then listen to this quote. Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated, or the broken and marginal, avoid the church. And that can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on the people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. So this is... This is the quote I saw. I think I, I read a little bit more than that, but it was it might have been an abbreviated quote. It started off with what our how Jesus attracted the irreligious people and offended the Bible believing people, and then we have a problem today because our churches don't do that, and we're not having the same effect as Jesus. Therefore, we're we're doing it all wrong. And I, I looked at this quote and I just thought that's so much of what we see. It, it is a fear of. It, attracting the wrong kind of people. There's a fashion, a style, a uh, an image that we want to generate about. And I, when I say we, I probably shouldn't say we. There's an image that a lot of American pastors want to generate about themselves and their church that sometimes isn't accurate. And if, <laughs> usually it's not, but if it is, 
it's it, it's saying to the world it's it's a message directed at people in the world that we are we're cool we're we we are not prudes uh we are very relatable people who live the same kind of life you do except we are happier than you because we have Jesus that kind of thing right and and some of this is probably familiar to the seeker sensitive movement that preceded the social justice movement and it, it maybe the shoe fits in that but I, I just sense that a lot of the motivation behind you think of Tim Keller right now the hermeneutical spiral right the way that he interprets scripture what he got from from Harvey Kahn which, which is abysmal it's just it's subjective it's not a grammatical historical hermeneutic. Um, his social justice stance, the, what, what Tim Keller believes about white privilege and how he thought that he had it when he was confronted by Elward Ellis uh, as a seminarian and how he now promotes the same kinds of things. He promotes uh, Michel Foucault, he promotes James Cone, he promotes uh, some of their teaching. I'm not saying everything they've said, but he promotes aspects of their teaching, which to be honest, especially with James Cone, are heretical. He promotes, um, I mean, he, he's on camera talking about if you're born white, it's worth a million dollars. And um, his book, Generous Justice, right? The, the whole premise of that book being that you need to engage in some kind of a social justice type thing. And if you don't, you, it's really, you're not, you're not being authentic to your Christianity. And I, there's so many things uh, that I could just ramble on about with Tim Keller, uh, his softening of the doctrine of hell, um, his the, the way he even talks about sin in such a soft way of uh, brokenness and uh, just he, he takes the personal responsibility so oftentimes out of it and speaks about it in a way that that makes it sound like we're the victims of our circumstances. And to some extent, look, sin causes victimhood. We're, we're, we're victims and culprits, right? In many ways. But when it comes to the sin in our own hearts that we're responsible for, we're culprits, we're not victims. So, so Keller has, has a way even of talking about truth where he softens it. He, he, anything that the world is doing or that the world wants or believes, uh, he, he tends to want to appeal to them in some way. That's my perception of Tim Keller. And the, I've read a numerous a number of his books, listened to a number of his sermons, read a number of his sermons. Uh, I, this is the, the sense I get from Tim Keller. He, he's on this mission to try to appeal to those people. And he knows he's got to soften some things in the Bible. And he's also got to open up certain concepts in the Bible to now include and, and, and sort of pack into Bible verses concepts that aren't there that the people in the world will like. And so he does this to make it more palatable, I think. That's what I see. He, he does these kinds of things, and that's the effect it has, is to, to make it more palatable to people in the world. And if they think for a moment, I'll give you one example of this, if, if they think that Christianity is somehow bigoted or offensive, then he does sort of, it's, some people call it the fortune cookie thing, right? The, Tim Keller has this fortune cookie, like, oh, you, let me give you a wise sayings that you, you have to take three Advil to understand sometimes and try to figure out. But he, he does this kind of like intellectual thing where he, uh, he tries to explain how you're misunderstanding Christianity, and then he represents it 
in what appears to be the more authentic version. You know, you, you believe the fake version, the pharisaical version of Christianity. Let me give you the authentic version and you'll like that. You'll, 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 you know, and, and the example I was going to give is the uh, years ago he had this, uh, I think it was Martin Bashir asked him about homosexuality, whether it was a sin. And it takes Tim Keller like, what is it, 10 minutes or something to, to answer the question in this roundabout way. And that's where he says, and J.D. Greer has quoted him, I think, uh, that heterosexuality uh, doesn't send you to heaven. So homosexuality can't send you to hell. And so he does these, these little mind games things you don't see in scripture. He can't just answer the question straight with, here's what the Bible says. He's got to do this kind of this soft peddling, this making it palatable thing. And that's what I see encapsulated in this paragraph from his book, The Prodigal God. This is before uh, he wrote Generous Justice, I believe. This is before he wrote Every Good Endeavor. This is a book that really, I think, put him on the map with a lot of people, made him very popular in evangelicalism in general. And I'm just saying, even as far back as when he first started, because some people have said, well, he kind of had gone off, he's gone off the rails in the last few years. No, the, you can see seeds of this going back a long ways. And, and certainly I think you see it in this book, The Prodigal God. And so what's wrong with what he said, right? This is what I want to get to. What's wrong with it? Does it doesn't that sound good? Isn't he right about Jesus? So I, I want to uh, put this in context because it's, if it was one tweet, uh, it's, we could analyze it, but it's it wouldn't be fair in my mind because he said a lot more than just that one tweet. I want to get the full spectrum, if we can, of what he said. So we're going to read through just this section, why people like Jesus but not the church. That's the, the section in the prodigal God, why people like Jesus but not the church. Both older brothers, he says, and younger brothers are with us today in the same society and often in the very same family. Frequently, and by the way, I'm the oldest sibling, so maybe I'm biased with my analysis, just <laughs> my, my social location prejudices me against the, the younger and middle siblings. Uh, anyway, uh, frequently the oldest sibling in a family is the parent pleaser, the responsible one who obeys the parental standards. The younger sibling tends to be the rebel, a free spirit who prefers the company admiration of peers. The first child grows up, takes a conventional job and settles down near mom and dad while the younger sibling goes off to live in a hip shady neighborhood of New York and Los Angeles. Funny enough, I am the oldest, but I've lived, I did live in Los Angeles for a short period of time. For the last four years, I have not been home, quote unquote, near my parents. My, my brothers, though, uh, have pretty much, they, they have been for most of their lives uh, at, at home or, or in the, the region of being near in the same vicinity as my parents. So, uh, so I, I guess maybe I break that stereotype a bit, but maybe, maybe this is true. Maybe to some extent, uh, older siblings do do this. I don't know. But he says that, uh, that that's his, his stereotype. And he says these natural temperamental differences have been accentuated, uh, accentuated in more recent times. In the early 19th century, industrialization gave rise to a new middle class, the bourgeois, which sought legitimacy through an ethic of hard work and moral rectitude. In response to perceived bourgeois hypocrisy and rigidity, communities of bohemians arose from Henry Merger's 1840s Paris... Paris to the Bloomsbury Group of London, the beats of Greenwich Village and indie rock scenes of the day. Bohemians stress freedom from convention and personal autonomy. So you you know you get a little little cultural here, right? I think people feel smart sometimes. Even though Tim Keller's the level at which he writes is pro probably lower high school, I would think. Uh, but he 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 has a lot of references that he puts out there: pop culture references, philosophical references. 
and I, I think where he is in New York City, I think that that's appealing to some people. You, there's a sense in which this is just a totally offhanded remark, but they, they I get this sense when I've listened to his sermons that it's like people are like, ooh, like that's you know he's talking about uh, you know Foucault, and it's really philosophical. You can't get this preaching just anywhere, right? To some degree, he says, the so-called culture wars are playing out these same conflicting... Actually, and I'll stop. I'll interrupt myself. I'm going to read that again. It's like a TED Talk. It's like a TED Talk. That's, that's the thought I had. When the way Tim Keller preaches and the references he makes is very similar to a TED Talk. Anyway, to some degree, the so-called culture wars are playing out these same conflicting temperaments and impulses in modern society. Now, why does he say the so-called? Like, there's real culture wars. In 2008, there were real culture wars. Marriage was was even being fought over in 2008. I don't know why he calls it the so-called culture wars, but it's almost like it's it's there. It's beneath us. It's fake. It's it's what ignorant people maybe I don't know. It's it's what certain demographics think is happening, but really, are you know, is it really hap? Is it really a culture war? Maybe our I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why he calls it that. More and more people today consider themselves non-religious or even anti-religious. They believe moral issues are highly complex and are suspicious of any individuals or institutions that claim moral authority over the lives of others. Despite, or perhaps because of, the rise of the secular spirit, there has been considerable growth in conservative orthodox religious movements. Alarmed by what they perceive as an onslaught of moral relativism, many have organized to take back the culture and take as dim... Uh, as uh, dim a view of younger brothers as the Pharisees did. Now, listen to what he's doing here. It's in 2008, Tim Keller's doing this. He sets up, there's an older brother and there's a younger brother, and they're different, right? They're, there's probably positive qualities and negative qualities with both, but they're just different. It's a personality thing. And then he's injecting the villain. The villain is the church who they side with the older brother, the responsible one who takes care of mom and dad and doesn't go off to LA or New York and run around with friends and live like the devil. And and they they look down, they judge that. And and that's what the religious people are trying to do. They're trying to judge that. They're they're afraid of moral relativism. So they think the problem with is is represented in the younger brother personality. And so this personality that's just, it's just an inhibition. It's just the way someone's wired. It's, it's the result. It's determined by the, the rank they, or the, the sequence in which they were born. It's, it's something amoral, but they make it a moral issue. They, they say that that's the problem, right? See how he's setting this up, all right? This is, this is cunning in my mind, the way that he's, he's framing this and getting people to think about it. So now you're going to think of like religious people who have moral standards they're, they're judging something that's determined, that's not even really a moral issue. They're, they're going after personality. They're, they're, it's bigoted ignorance. That's the insinuation here. It is hard for us to realize this today. When, but when Christianity first arose in the world, it was not called a religion. It was a non-religion. Imagine, this, so this is what he's doing now. Hey, for those who think of Christianity in this, now, now that you're realizing I'm with you, I also, I also look at these religious people and I think, man, they're, they're intolerant tightwads. I mean, they're just narrow-minded, not seeing uh, the, the full spectrum of personality and flavor and diversity God's created. And so they want to just constrain things so everyone's an older brother. They want, they want this cookie cutter, this is how we're supposed to be, okay? So now you have that image in your head that that's what conservative Christians are who are involved in the culture wars, 
right? So who are opposing homosexual marriage and abortion and whatever immorality, pornography, all these kinds of things. You have this image, this negative image of them now as you're reading this. And now he's introducing you to the pure, authentic Christianity. He's making a contrast. He's saying, hold on, this is what we have today in the church. But back in the day, back in the first century, the real, authentic, true, pure, new Christianity was not even, a, people didn't even think it was a religion. They didn't view, the, the image you have, no one thought of that when they thought of Christianity. They just thought of Christianity as this, uh, this non-religion. In fact, it was, it's, it's more like today's secularism is probably what you're going to draw from this. Oh, you know, real Christianity is closer to, day, to today's secularism than it is to what calls itself Christianity today. So he's setting up a moral posturing and he's putting himself he's kind of with the crowd who's going they're they're actually the ones judging they're judging these conservative christians who want to be involved in the culture wars quote unquote the so-called he says culture wars and he wants to condemn them and then at, while condemning them do a little sleight of hand like the mad the magician would do and pull the bunny out and say but look we still have christianity you know, so he's he's going to save Christianity, I think. I think that's really the motive of the people following Tim Keller too often, that they want to save Christianity. They want, we're going to have Christianity, but it's, we're going to reimagine it. It's going to be totally different than what you think of it. And we're going to go back to the authentic Christianity. So what is the authentic Christianity? Well, it's, imagine the neighbors of early Christians asking them about their faith. Where's your temple? They'd ask. And the Christians would reply that they didn't have a temple. But how could that be? Where do your priests labor? The Christians would have replied that they didn't have priests, but but the neighbors would have sputtered, where are the sacrifices made to please your gods? The Christians would have responded to that. They did not make sacrifices anymore. Jesus himself was the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Now, this all sounds good, but let's be honest. There's real answers to some of this stuff. Where do you worship, right? He says, where is your temple? Okay, we don't have a temple. But you could say our bodies are, are the temple for the Holy Spirit. Or you could say that uh, actually there we do have a place we meet. It's over there at Philemon's house. <laughs> we, we, we're meeting over there. And Tim Keller probably wouldn't want to mention that there's a guy named Onesimus that Philemon and him get along now because they're brother and sister in Christ and they happen to have a slave master relationship. But you don't, don't tell the people that. That, that would cause problems. Uh, don't tell them that all the leaders in the churches are male as well. The, the, the people that are, have elder authority or, or are, are apostles, don't, don't tell them that either. Um, it, this is, see, so, so there's all the kinds of things, hangups that, that the world has with the church. Tim Keller tries to sidestep some of those. And then he tries to, to make the case that actually the things that evoke uh, a negative response from worldly people today about religion and the bad experiences they may or may have not have had or what they've seen on TV that tells them religion's bad that or Christianity's bad in particular he's trying to show them that you know that's even pure Christianity though isn't that there it's not a religion it's a relationship right but he's saying it in a more way sophisticated way uh and I don't even know if actually maybe he doesn't get to the relationship part he's, he's at least saying it's not a religion really but they would have had answers to some of this. Hey, we worship over there at Philemon's house. They would have said, you know, you're priests. Well, we don't have priests, but, you know, Jesus is our high priest. But we do have a hierarchy. We do have leadership. We do have apostles. Hey, Paul was just here. This is what he said. This is what he preached on. Uh, we had a guy fall out of the window and die. I mean, like, and Paul raised him back. They could, they could say these things. 
Um, so, you know, why aren't you making sacrifices? We make sacrifices all the time, but it's not to, um, it, our bodies are the living sacrifice. We live in such a way to obey God. And the final, the, the, the sacrifice that uh, pays for our, our sins that puts us into a right, right relationship with God is one, the one Christ did. So there's, there's answers to this. But he's making it out like Christians just, it, it's unlike anything in the ancient world. Well, yeah, there were differences, but look, they still, they still met. They still had a place. They still had leaders. They still had hierarchy. They still had um, rituals they did and these kinds of things. It was a religion, okay? It still is a religion in, in the purest sense of the term religion. It, it, uh, they fed orphans. They clothed, or they, they clothed orphans. They, they, they visited widows in their distress. They, it's a religion, okay? It's, it's more than that, but it is a religion. No one had ever heard anything, Tim Keller says, like this. So the Romans called them atheists because what the Christians were saying about spirituality was unique and could not be classified with the other religions of the world. Now, hold on. We'll stop right there. Think Acts 17. Paul's on Mars Hill. What's the hang-up for them? What are they saying? Wow, we've never heard of this before. The resurrection. That's the hang-up. Uh, the gospel is foolishness to, to, to Greeks. Um, it, it's, he's identifying the wrong thing here. He's saying they were out of step with uh, the, the Romans because they weren't religious. That's not why they were out of step with the Romans. They were, they were out of step with the Romans because of the actual teachings of their religion. <laughs> he said, this parable explains why they were absolutely right to call themselves them atheists. So the Romans, so the common uh, slander against the Christians was they were atheists and that they, um, they had incest and, and, and homosexuality at their love feasts. And uh, there were, there are all kinds of things like this. Cannibalism, right? was, was uh, you know, something that they were accused of. But they would not make the sacrifice to Caesar. So the other religions, mo most of them at least, they, uh, if not all, they, they could have their gods, and then they could also make the sacrifice to Caesar. The Christians said, no, there's only one god. And because the other religions had such a pantheon of gods uh, that it was to the polytheists, it looked like you know they're atheists. They don't even have a statue to their god, right? So identify that. Where's the idol to your god? We don't have an idol, right? But the Jews didn't either. So it's... It's not unique for the reasons, or it's not limited to the reasons that Tim Keller thinks Christianity was unique. And he's totally skipping over the real reasons that they were in conflict or with the Romans, or it was a unique thing for the Romans to see. The irony of this should not be lost on us, Tim Keller says, standing as we do in the midst of the modern culture wars. To most people in our society, Christianity is religion and moralism. The only alternative to it, besides some other world religion, is pluralistic secularism. But from the beginning, it was not so. Christianity was recognized as tertium quid, something else entirely. Now, I'd have to look that up. I don't know. Tertium quid. It must mean something else entirely, I guess. Uh, in, in Latin, I think. Uh, the crucial point here is that, you see, I feel smart now that I, I pronounced that. The crucial point here is that in general, religiously observant people were offended by Jesus, but those estranged from religious and moral observance were intrigued and attracted to him. We see this throughout the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. In every case where Jesus meets a religious person and a sexual outcast, as in Luke 7, uh, or a religious person and a racial... So, so the Luke 7, I think, is the healing of... Uh, Actually, let me look it up. It's, it, I think he heals the centurion's uh, child in Luke 7. 
religious person and racial outcast is in John 3 through 4. So John 3 is Nicodemus. John 4 would be the woman at the well. Or a religious person and a political outcast, he says, as in Luke 19, uh, which would be Zacchaeus. The outcast is the one who connects with Jesus and the elder brother type does not. Now, here's an, let, let's, let's stop here for a moment. He jumps from, hey, look, early Christianity, out of step with the Romans. And guess what? It attracted uh, kind of these marginalized outcasts, right? Don't you feel like you're an outcast from the church? You, you would be attracted to the real Christianity. And the thing is, though, there, there were wealthy members of the church, uh, the early church. There, there were, in fact, um, I mean, even look at Paul, who was trained under Gamaliel, uh, Pharisee of Pharisees right? Is he an older brother or a younger brother in this? I mean, God called people from all kinds of, every tribe, tongue, nation, but also different uh, so, strata of society and socioeconomic backgrounds. That's what you see in the early church. And so I, I don't know that that dog hunts, but then he tries to say, well, it's just like Jesus, right? Jesus was like this too. He, uh, the religious people didn't like him, but you know, the outcast did. And the thing is that he brings up John 3 and 4. John 3 is all Nicodemus. And, and later on, we find out that Nicodemus uh, helps Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus and donates a, a lot to, to that effort. He's, he would be on, like, he would be considered religious. I mean, I don't know how else. He, he would be a religious person. He would have been uh, a wealthy person, a person that certainly drew within the lines. And yet... I, you know, I don't know. He, 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 there's, I don't know if he's trying to imply here that, you know, Jesus didn't connect with the elder brother types they, or they didn't connect with him. Um, the, the outcast is the one who connects with Jesus and the elder brother type does not. Well, it, wouldn't Nicodemus be the elder brother type in this? So yeah, there, there's examples certainly of the Samaritans, you know, gospel going to the Samaritans. There's examples of him, uh, but look, even at the things he says, though, sometimes when Gentiles are around, hey, I wasn't sent to you guys. Hey, you know, we, you don't feed the children's food to the dogs. I mean, he says stuff like this. Tom Keller's not mentioning that. So he was, his primary mission was to the lost house of Israel. But yes, he's, he's foreshadowing and he's showing that there's a, there's a new covenant and that he, uh, that his ministry is extending out to Gentiles as well. And they're reaping the benefits of this, which is the fulfillment of, the promise in Genesis, that the seed that would um, that that would bless the nations of the world, and so Tim Keller's trying to make that whole thing a, like a like Jesus is on the fringes, Jesus is on the edges, he's not with the the tightwad religious goody two shoes types. Jesus says to the respectable religious leaders, Tim Keller says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom before you. Now, who did he say that to in Matthew 21? Was it to, it, yeah, okay, respected religious leaders, yeah. But we're talking about scribes and Pharisees. We're talking about people who were self-righteous. Uh, we're talking about people who were legalists, who rejected him, rejected the gospel, rejected biblical teaching for the sake of what? Their own tradition. They were, it wasn't that they were holding so tightly to the Bible. They were holding tightly to their own traditions that had replaced the Bible. That's who he's correcting. So the image that you get in your mind after reading this from Tim Keller is that there's, it's the people fighting the culture wars, those conserv politically conservative Christians who are afraid of postmodernism and, and homosexuality and all of that. 
they're the ones that are just like the Pharisees. Now that is a comparison. And I'm telling you, that doesn't, that, isn't that what you, when you read this or listen to this, isn't that the, the comparison you draw? That is kind of disgusting in my mind that people trying to uphold civil morality, cultural morality are now just, they're the prudes that are compared to Pharisees. Are there people in that are fighting the culture wars who are Pharisees? Yeah, of course. And I see a whole lot more of them, I think, that are fighting the social justice battle. I mean, that's the whole point of A.D. Robles' book, Social Justice Pharisees. You can go in the link in the info section and order it or get it from A.D. Um, he, he offers it as well, I'm sure. Uh, that's the whole point of uh, my book when I talk about the social justice gospel. I have a whole chapter of that in Christianity and social justice. And I just show these guys are Pharisees. They're taking their social justice derived law, merging it with the gospel, calling it the gospel. It's, it's false teaching. That's the, the, that's a concern I have. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm concerned about legalists too, that, that are, that think that they're maybe political conservatism is part of the gospel. I just don't meet people like that much. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying that those categories are usually not confused. And, uh, and yeah, I'm sure there's conservative, politically conservative churches out there uh, that are doing this. But Tim Keller is operating on stereotypes here. He is trying to, he's put, trying to cr paint with broad brushes and create a black and white, here's the conservative, politically conservative Christians over here fighting the culture wars and they're the Pharisees. And uh, this is this is a tactic he's using, and he's used it so much. He uses it all the time. This is the whole "I'm not right, I'm not left, I'm a Christian," as if that actually communicates anything. So, the good news of the gospel is that God saves people from all sins, including pride, and including yes, pr the prostitutes and the tax collectors, stealing and adultery and fornication, all of them. He, he, God saves from all those things. Why can't you? Why can't we just say that? He saves people from all social. Uh, strata and the the sins that they may be part of. He saves conservatives politically, he saves even progressives politically. But I guarantee you, if a progressive is going to get saved, some things are going to start changing. If they're political in this environment, especially if they're politically progressive and they, they believe some immoral things. I'm talking like Democratic Party platform. That's what I'm talking about here. If they believe that, yeah, God can, God will save them. He can and he does. They're going to change though. Let's keep going. Jesus, okay, so here's here's where we get into the quote that I read initially. This is the whole, so I read you, this is the whole context. And then we get to this. Jesus teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. Well, that justifies J.D. Greer and Tim Keller when they offend the conservatives in their own denominations. They, they feel justified. They're hitting the mark. They're being like Jesus, right? However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. Now, this was in 2008. I wonder if today he'd still say that. Probably would, but dude, so churches that aren't um that are if your church is not offending bible believing religious people then you're in the wrong that's we got to start offending bible believing people and attracting worldly people the kind of outsiders jesus attracted are not attracted to, to, to contemporary churches even our most avant-garde ones we tend to draw conservative button down moralistic people the licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church, that can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on the people that Jesus had, then we must be declaring the same message that not, not be declaring the same message Jesus did. Our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers. They must be uh, more full of el elder brothers than we'd like to think. So what he's saying here is that 
he's questioning their legitimacy as a church. You're like, you must not be on point. You must not be sharing the gospel. You must not be, you whatever your message is, if that's what you're, if you're not offending religious people, Bible-believing people, he says, social, uh, or uh, people who are fighting the culture wars that want to, if you're not offending those anti-abortion and anti-transgender uh, people, right, you're doing it wrong. And you should be attracting the people who are, not part of churches, who are secular, who are uh, the the younger brothers who, you, you know, I guess, according to Keller, they leave their families and they go run off with peer groups in major cities. You got to attract those people. Why? Why? What's wrong with a pastor? Let's say, yeah, I was just in a place, uh, Grant, uh, Nebraska, right? All these pick Grant, Nebraska out of a hat here. Uh, 1,200 people in Grant, Nebraska. Things don't change probably a lot in Grant, Nebraska. People are farmers in Grant, Nebraska. Uh, the people who work in town would be supporting that industry. There's one grocery store. The community knows each other. They get together for things. Uh, what would be wrong with someone who grows up in Grant, Nebraska and just says, I'm going to live the way my parents lived? Same way. I'm going to farm. I'm going to dress pretty much the same way. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to keep those traditions that they passed down to me, and we're going to follow the law of God here. And I'm going to live my, the rest of my life in Grant, Nebraska. What would be wrong with that? Is there sin there? I mean, you're, you're attracting the people in your town. You're not going to New York City and finding the runaways who are worldly to come. Now, you're open to them coming, but you're not tailoring your message to attract them. So you mainly have traditional Bible-believing people who would be conservative against the progressive tendencies in the quote-unquote culture wars. And now, according to Tim Keller, you'd have to just go offend them. And if you're not offending them, your message is off. You can see how this would split up churches. <laughs> so, um, but it justifies those who in, who want to attract the, a certain demographic. And it's like fishing with a lure and you're only, I, you know, I want to just catch largemouth bass. I don't care about the trout. I don't care about the sunfish. I don't care. Just largemouth bass. Meanwhile, you could be using a lure called the gospel that attracts every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's one of the big problems with this. And so... In this context, I want to show you all something. Let's see if I can pull this up. This is from the Pew Research Center. And I want you to think about maybe the possibility of this being a lost opportunity. More white Americans adopted than shed evangelical label during Trump presidency, especially his supporters. September 15th, 2021, Pew Research Center put this out. Number one, there, are, there is no mass departure of white Americans from evangelical Protestantism between 2016 and 2020. Okay, there, so there's this myth going around, I guess it's a myth according to them, that, what, that evangelicals, you know, it's just Trump destroyed evangelicalism. There's a mass departure. Uh, and it's saying, no, that's not really the case. And it, it's saying white Americans aren't doing that. It says between 2016 and 2020, white Americans with warm views towards Trump were far more likely, so more likely, than those with less favorable views of the former president to begin identifying as born-again evangelical Protestants. In other words, they didn't call themselves that. Since Trump, they've started calling themselves that. There is no clear evidence that white evangelicals who opposed Trump were more likely than Trump supporters to leave the evangelical fold. Interesting. Uh, Trump garnered even more support in 2020 than in 2016 among white voters who identified as evangelical Protestant in both years and voted in at least one of the two elections. Number five, the share of non-white U.S. adults who abandoned the born-again evangelical label in recent years is offset by the share who adopted it. So the people who did leave, right, who get a lot of press, doesn't really matter. More numbers came in of people who want to be evangelical 
than who left during the Trump years. It just like throws a wrench in everything the progressive evangelicals keep saying. Now, why do I bring this up in the context of this Keller piece? The reason I bring it up is this. What about those people? Think about it. Why do you think they are identifying as evangelical? They're seeing their culture get destroyed. They're seeing the standards that used to exist not exist anymore. They're concerned and they, they're starting to realize there's something related to religion in all this. There's an anti-Christian vein and they want, they want Christianity. They want some kind of stability for the culture. But guess what? In Keller's mind, people who read Keller, they would be considered the Trump-supporting white evangelicals. They're the older brothers. They're the ones you're supposed to try to offend if you're a pastor. I'm just telling you, that's, that's who these people are. Meanwhile, there's a whole mission field there. What about the older brother? What about the, the people who uh, want order and want responsibility and want stability? What about them? Have they, is there anyone that's acting as a voice for them, representing their concerns, explaining things to them, helping them, ministering to them, missions organizations devoted to them? I just saw recently, it was, it's the, uh, I think it was written by the chair of Carl Truman's department at Grove City College, an article uh, that's directed at Appalachia, uh, how they need to be more diverse, chiding them for not being diverse. That's the message that's going out there. I mean, even if you think that, which it's Appalachia, <laughs> when you only have the certain people in your community, there's only so much you can do. But even if you believe that, really, what kind of a priority is that? Isn't that that's pretty low on the list, wouldn't you say? What about all these new people attracted to evangelicalism? They're coming to evangelicalism. And Keller's got nothing. <laughs> He's got, he, they, they see that there was, there's something bad going on in the culture and the moral standards. And that, that's the thing that's attracting them. I guarantee it. That's the thing. They, they are yearning for some kind of stability, for some kind of hope. Because what they're seeing happen and how bad it is. And are they given hope from the, the progressive evangelicals? Are they given hope from the social justice evangelicals, if you want to use that term? No, they're, they're derided. And I think this has continued. And I think what Keller wrote from 2008, I think that has permeated much of elite modern evangelicalism. And even the conservatives, supposed conservatives, many of them who are say they're against social justice, they don't openly court this demographic. They're afraid. I'm telling you, a lot of them are very afraid. They don't want to come out and say, you know what, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm unapologetically uh, for the or against those who would, uh, who, who opposed Donald Trump. And I don't think mean everything that Trump represent, you know, said or did. I mean, what he represented to these people who now are seeing Christianity as a stability. And that, and Trump, and the, the reason they would have voted for Trump is because they wanted that stability. They wanted, they wanted to reinforce uh, the the status quo that used to exist. They don't want the revolution. There's hardly any conservatives that really want to come out and really, you know, I, the monument issue is a great issue to even bring up on this because that's one of the issues that I see as how how many people against critical race theory are demanding 
See, Glenn Young in Virginia is a good example, are demanding we put up all the monuments that were taken down. Lewis and Clark, taken down from Charlottesville. Robert E. Lee, taken down from Richmond and Charlottesville. Uh, lakes renamed. Street names renamed. Uh, Jefferson, Washington, taken down from a church in Northern Virginia. Why? Glenn Youngkin's never said anything about this. But most, there's, I'm just, what I'm saying is, I'm, I'm making a point here. I'm saying there's a lot of those type of people, even in conservative evangelicalism, who say they're against critical race theory, but they don't lift a finger to stop most of the damage or much of the damage that critical race theory is doing currently. And I think these the people who are attracted to evangelicalism, they're looking, they're searching. You know, you want seeker sensitive. These people are seeking. They want to find stability. I'm seeing it in my own church right now. People who've lost their jobs because of the jab, they're showing up at church. Can you talk about lost opportunity today? Can we talk about that? A lost opportunity. People who were living their lives, their lives were interrupted by totalitarianism and evil, and they feel attacked, and they want stability. They want, they're yearning for something. And what do they have in the elite circles of evangelicalism? Derision against them. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And the, the appeal is always made, no, we got the leftists, really. We got to love the leftists and, and appeal to them. That's what Jesus would have done. Does Tim Keller say the word leftist? No. But everything he said, the, the younger brother, the one who goes off to these inner cities and, uh, or the, these cities and uh, runs with the peer group and not the parents, right? The, they're not, they're, they're the opposite of the Bible-believing people. They're uh, not fighting the culture war against progressivism. Those are the people that the church should attract and they should offend the Bible-believing culture warriors against uh, the the total free fall that we're in. So I think this was just, this section of this book, I think was so um, important to me to illustrate uh, because I just thought this is it. This is like, you going back to 2008, this is the seeds of what we're seeing today. This is the key to, I think, much of what we're seeing. And that's why people like this, you can't, you, you have to start like five steps back. They, they just don't, don't even understand what Jesus was doing. They're, I'm, I'm talking about Tim Keller. It's like you don't even understand what Jesus was doing. What his, the point of Jesus uh, reaching out to various different people. It wasn't just because he valued diversity. Uh, there, there was prophetic things going on there. And it's not like he ignored the quote-unquote religious people. He doesn't rail against the scribes and Pharisees. Till, he doesn't do it in the beginning of his ministry. Uh, there's, he teaches. They're there. They're listening. And they reject, and then he goes after them. They challenge. He goes after them. Tim Keller wants to take the archetypes of history. He wants to take the villains and the heroes, and he put himself in the heroes along with worldly people. And he wants to take villains, and he wants to impose that characterization upon, let's just say, people like myself, people like you who are listening to this podcast. It's disgusting. And I think... Uh, I, th I just thought that this illustrates it so well. So that's my uh, podcast for today. Uh, hope that was uh, enlightening and hopefully, I mean, it's a little depressing, but hopefully it, light bulbs are going off. Hopefully you're going on. Hopefully you're seeing that, yeah, this is what's happened and, and it's more clear and now you're seeing it everywhere because that's, that's what I wanted to do. That was my purpose in this. So uh, yeah, go to, if you don't have it, uh, worldviewconversation.com. I'll put a link in the info section. You can get Christianity and social justice, religion and conflict there. 
And if you want to know more about Tim Keller, you can get Social Justice Goes to Church, The New Left and Modern American Evangelicalism, whole section on Tim Keller and uh, explaining kind of his political views, his biography, what he believes right here in this appendix, Tim Keller and progressive evangelicalism. So you'll enjoy that, uh, I think, and God bless. Have a great holiday season. I hope that uh, as Christmas approaches that you're staying warm wherever you are and enjoying all the things that come with that. God bless. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.